Hello. Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Matt Taibbi. And we're broadcasting from Quarantine City. Yep. Third world. Uh, this is our new reality. Virtual entertainment, virtual everything. How, how are you adjusting to it, Katie? I mean, I just got up uh, to my uh, alternate location last night. So um, it's not in the city, which is nice. It's outside the city. But we'll see how crazy I go. Uh, which we had the woke button. That's ableist. But we'll, we yeah, can- We're going to have a, a new virtual uh, woke button. And you're going to be able to see us hitting it with a cursor, I think, is the idea. We have not yet developed that technology, but we're adjusting. It's all about the adjustments in, in this uh, post-COVID uh, reality. So we're, we're, we're going to do everything we can to make life more amenable to you, the consumer. So uh, this is crazy, right? This is, uh, I, I have a lot of mixed feelings about this already, I think. What's the mix? Let's just say I, I understand the need for all this caution. Oh, oh, oh. Myself, but, uh, but I think the, there's the, the overboard factor is, is getting, getting a little bit. You're nuts. saying it's mixed. Your, your response is, I thought you meant mixed on, on COVID. I was like, I don't really see the upside to it. It's not that. I'm, a, I'm just a little concerned about the response and what, what the long-term implications are. But um, for, for now, hey, look, this is, uh, I'm, I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay home. I'm going to get fat. Uh, and listen to Devo records all day long, and that's pretty much all I'm going to do. How, what, what's your plan? Well, maybe uh, now that you've mentioned that, I should do a workout. Uh, I should really focus on working out because, mm. uh, yeah, and I'll take advantage of your getting fat to look right. thinner by contrast. We'll have like a synergy, or I don't know what that would be. What, what's, what's, uh, what would what's it the be? Word for that? I'm not uh, sure. Zero sum, some kind of zero sum game thing, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. But anyway, uh, look, there's also lots of stuff to talk about in politics, so I guess we should get to that too, yeah. right? Four food groups. Yeah. Um, so for Democrats suck, and I'm gonna contradict myself here because uh, I think the biggest thing, the most egregious thing was the DNC's decision to hold the the primaries uh, and Tom Perez, and then we have some video uh, of Perez talking uh, on MSNBC with uh, with Chris Hayes, which was was pretty amazing. It is your view that this can be safely conducted tomorrow. Who who are you been consulting to come to that view? Well, again, I, I, we didn't intervene in that case. No, I know I, I, this it. is a state matter, yeah. but I'm asking your position sure. as Tom Perez, the head in DNC. Sure. My my understanding is you're saying you agree with the states that are going forward. Yes, we, we respect what they're doing, and we, you know, we always encourage everyone, and I've, I was in contact today with uh, people in a number of these states, uh, including but not limited to Arizona, and again, asking them if they, do they believe they have the systems in place that enable them to put the elections on tomorrow, and they do. We respect what they're doing. They, they've, they just decided willy-nilly that they, they wanted to press forward with uh, the primaries. Obviously, Ohio uh, took a different tack. Uh, their governor stepped in and canceled the primary, so we didn't have an Ohio primary. But but we have uh, some amazing footage from what from the other scenes. Um, we got uh, let's take a look at Chicago, uh, some of the scene from Chicago. So yeah, we have a long line of people to like 200 people long, uh, and so all these people are going to be they're, they're basically standing six feet apart from each other, but for like forever. There's another photo, the, the next one, Dan, if you could see it, it's, an, it's, it's a scene of people in a polling station. Yeah, so here's people in a poorly ventilated underground uh, situation. They're all, they're all uh, crammed into each other. There's a long line. People have to wait to, to wait to vote. And here's some people in Chicago talking about what the, 
what that was like. There are senior citizens sitting in there. They've been at two to three hours waiting. There are too many people smashed together in there. It's too close in there. They're talking about all of this. What's wrong? It's taking too long. And I mean, I've been standing out here an hour myself. Too many people in there. None of the senior citizens are being waited on. They're just sitting there and waiting. And a lot of people are leaving. They're not voting because they're having to wait so long. So they're leaving. It's obvious. I mean, everybody in the world basically has already concluded, like, you know, the NBA, uh, you know, the, the NHL, like, you know, basically every sports league in the world is, is canceled. There's gatherings of any size have basically been banned all across the country. And yeah, it, despite what I just said, we don't know a whole lot about what's going on, but everybody's sort of taking the position that, you know, for the time being, let's err on the side of caution. Let's, let's avoid large gatherings, especially in poorly ventilated areas where, you know, because this is a disease that's sort of translated, um, uh, you know, it's an aer aerosolizing, right? Virus or whatever it is. So the fact that the DNC pressed forward with this 100%, if the, if the primary was going in a different direction, if if Biden were losing and they wanted to halt the momentum of whoever was winning, um, it seems abundantly clear to me that they would be calling for primaries to be banned in every in every state. And um, it, it's just the the cynicism of this is extraordinary because the, in all other areas, everybody's backing these incredibly draconian measures. But just by an extraordinary coincidence, they just they want to go forward with this uh, because why? Because then then they could, then they got. The, the wipeout result in Florida, they got the wipeout result in Illinois and Arizona and, you know, which I guess from their point of view is a good thing. Yeah. And they're now, of course, implementing mail-in. They're now allowing for mail-in ballots, um, coincidentally, after <laughs> that. I don't know. I mean, okay, I feel really naive, but I really felt like this is something Trump would do or some really ghoulish Republicans. But the Dems are really like, and you know, Matt, obviously, I'm very critical of the Dems, but this is a for me like a different level of of ghoulishness um, that I didn't totally think was possible. For the DNC to sit down and and have a, a planned right. position on this, having thought it through, having come out like this this is what our posture is going to be on, right. on this is kind of extraordinary. I think given the circumstance. And weren't they going to punish states that did that? Oh yes, yeah, so they were going to they were going to reduce the the influence of delegates uh, from and those states. So unbelievable. Right. Yeah. Which is totally craven. I mean, we're, we're in like a new reality where, you know, the things that we used to consider normal or ethical or whatever are no longer really part of the equation because, and I think it's important to understand that a lot of this is because for the first time, something is really at stake in, in American politics, right? Like the, you know, in, in the past, if you had John Kerry winning instead of Bob Graham or, or whatever it was, like they weren't particularly worried about the right. results, but the, you know, there's, the, there's a lot at stake when the three candidates that are left are, you know, or Tulsi's in it too, but you know, San Sanders and Trump and, and Biden, all of them are kind of, you know, there are major ramifications for any one of those folks winning. So, right. Yeah. They're pulling out all the stops. It's amazing. Other, just really quickly on Democrats sucking this week, they, the Democrats voting to re-extend the Patriot Act or provisions of the Patriot, Patriot Act with overwhelming numbers. Of course, it got absolutely no, no press in the middle of this. But just to remind everybody, especially with Biden on the ticket, that this is the party that backed all those uh, crazy draconian post 9-11 surveillance measures and, and they're still doing it. So that's great.
What, what well, do we have for Republican suck? Um, listeners and viewers may remember that we saw uh, Sean Spicer uh, do a very good Latin dance, and we couldn't decide. Matt, you brought you brought in this clip, and you couldn't decide if this was Republicans suck or Republicans are awesome. Right. Um, and we have a similar dilemma, um, similar potential debate with this clip that I'm presenting. So uh, can we go to the videotape? Right now, here to perform Unmasked once and for all. I can't wait for this. The artist formerly known as the Bear. Y'all make some noise for <laughs> Governor Sarah Palin. Can I be your hype man? She really uh, let it fly with that. I mean, yeah, I, I, I admire it. I, 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 I don't know. I'm not a fan of Sarah Palin's, uh, uh, but she, she really, that takes, that takes a lot of guts. Not only to wear that, but uh, she, 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 she really well, belted that out. I know. And that yeah. line, she's like, and I'm thinking about sticking. <laughs> Red beans and rice didn't miss her. It's a great song. It's actually a great song, <laughs> totally and I is. think it's a, I think it's a feminist song. It was ahead of the curve in terms of um, body positivity. Uh, yeah, okay. I All mean, right. it's totally exploit, uh, totally objectifying, but it's objectifying in a new direction. Okay. You know All what right. I mean? You, no, mm -hmm. but that's no. okay. I'll, I'll accept your pronouncement on that. That's, no. that's good. Yeah. It's uh, woke. I think it's woke. It's is it woke? woke? All right. Um, yeah. What a weird world we're living in where suddenly, like, you know, that's that's your family values party right there belting up baby got back and up is down night is day but you know what i'm upset about she didn't say one of the best lines in that song which is my anaconda don't want none unless you got <laughs> buns hun <laughs> she didn't do it no i don't think i i think she didn't do that which is upsetting uh, yeah she wouldn't say the word horny either i know but yeah. she would say stick it she may honestly maybe she doesn't even understand what that's a reference to i think she understands all the references right but she just wouldn't say horny yeah yeah, I don't know. That's uh, really into literary devices. What's what's the what's the verdict on this? I mean, I think it, instead of two thumbs way up, what, what's what's the Republican two two uh, elephant guns way up? Oh, or guns, guns way up. yeah, yeah. Especially with her two way up. What does she kill wolves? Two wolf heads way up. Wolf, wolf heads way up. Yeah, like literally, right. you know, instead of being mounted like normal, the wolf right. heads on the wall, they're like facing up. Right. That was so. I, I don't know. I don't think that's really a Republican suck. I think you owe us another one next week. I know. I could watch that over and over I and know. over again. Actually, no, probably not. There's probably a limit to how many times I could watch that. Yeah. But we haven't hit it yet. Oh, yeah. one thing I wanted, just one thing I wanted to add about with the Democrats. I really want. I think that I wish that Tom Perez had gone to the polling stations while people were voting, to observe and monitor, um, and be in that close enclosed space with a bunch of people. I do. I do. Kind of, but then he would be potentially spreading it. But if somehow he could have gone to those polling um, centers and then we could incubate him, not incubate him, then we could isolate him and he quarantine him. He could have done him. it. it, was, it would, they would have figured out a way to, to fake it somehow, yeah. like Barack Obama drinking the exactly. Flint water. Exactly, exactly. They would have put yeah. a, card, a cardboard waving uh, Tom Perez, you know, and taking which, photos of it. You know? which, which I don't think is very different from the real life Tom Perez. Right. He's about as uncharismatic and cardboard-like as you can get. Okay, isn't that weird? 
I mean, everything is coronavirus related. So we've got the, uh, we've got coronavirus merch is now becoming a thing. So you got all kinds of stuff to that's, that's becoming popular to buy lots of interesting new products and it's, it's pretty odd. So we have a, uh, you can buy on Amazon. Now you can buy a baby spittle hat. <laughs> oh my God. What? So it's like a salad bar thing that goes over your child's face who your, your child who's already wearing a surgical mask so that's one product so it's uh, sorry it's an anti-spitting protective hat kids dust proof cover boys girls hat fisherman cap so it's a hat that comes with the mask yes i'm looking at it right now it comes in different colors with little messages on it people who can't see it has like a plastic shell right uh under the cap so I mean, it's, pretty... a, it's a fisherman's hat fisher hat whatever and then there's a a round plastic thing underneath it that that blocks you off. Yeah. I mean, this is only the beginning. There's going to be they're, we're they're going to be selling plastic bubbles for people to walk in pretty soon. I think that's probably a week away from that. But but that that's this is where it starts. We also have um, there's a whole bunch of things you can buy now that that are stickers or signs that let people know that you that you are infected. Uh, so let's look at the motorcycle trailer. So there's a warning coronavirus. Uh, stickers that you stick on your car or for bu your bumper car or in your on your on your laptop, uh, your cell phone, your bike. Uh, so that so that's already book. happening. Yeah, if you're if you're off road coronavirusing, um, you, you, this is this is the sticker that you put on. Uh, also, very very popular, becoming more popular is the thermometer gun. Uh, Dan, if you could take a look. So this is so you can kind of go up near somebody and kind of. Actually, you might have even seen people doing this already. They sort of aim this at somebody. And they want to, if you want to see what temperature they are, and it'll, it'll make a little red uh, infrared dot on the person near you. Apparently, they're not terribly reliable um, and or accurate, but people are. They want to know if the person near them is is having a fever. So that's that's going on. So there's all kinds of stuff that's being sold. Uh, I think it's going to get, uh, I think it's something we want to re revisit from time to time because it's going to yeah. get stranger. Like every so. week we can feature a new product. Yep. I thought it was actually a gun that could take your temperature. Like I thought it was a gun, gun, when I heard oh, about it. Oh, you mean it. like it would shoot you and take your yeah, temperature? Yeah, yeah. Like That's you could take, you would take their temperature and then depending on that, you'd shoot them. <laughs> That actually would be handy. That's like a, that's like an anti-zombie type of yeah, thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is the person uh, infected? And right. Then, yes, we should shoot them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. What do we have for? Isn't that terrible? For isn't that terrible? We have um, news that this disease, Corona, this virus, may have come from bats. Who the the bad thing about bats? And now I'm kind of on a campaign to maybe get rid of them. Um, like I used to be about cats, but I've turned, I've uh, come around on cats. But a study published in 2015 in the Nature Journal had warned that severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS, like viruses circulating in Chinese bat populations may pose a serious future threat. And the thing that's scary about bats is that they can have these things and not die. I guess they're very like resilient. So they, they, I was going to say they walk around, they fly around with these diseases and, um, they don't do drop dead like they should, uh, and then they're and then people are exposed to them. Yeah, I, th I think I think the scary part about the, the thing, this story, and you start your, you'll see already that some uh, news services are starting to hammer this theme a little bit. Is this idea that there's a you know you'll see this word reservoir floating around that there is a reservoir of of 
not yet released acute respiratory viruses that is coming so that this is only the first wave of many future uh, COVID type diseases, uh, which means that we, you know, we, we could be theoretically in a state of permanent lockdown. So that's, it, you know, we started this feature as a joke because the, the news always wants to give you a little bit of terrifying, potentially horrifying news somewhere in the broadcast because scared news consumers are good news consumers. They'll come back and watch tomorrow. Uh, but that's this is like the whole broadcast is going to be like this from now on, at least for a while, which is which is a little crazy. This is, so I guess what I'm saying is the the parodic nature of this feature is starting to lose its its teeth a little right. bit because yeah. this isn't even funny anymore. Yeah, and I have to update my take. Maybe we, okay, I take that back. So uh, actually, according to um, someone quoted in this article, a wildlife biologist and Indian bat conservation unit, there's a myth. He explained that in India, myths cause ill-informed people to kill bats, which adds to the stress. Quote, it is true that bats are reservoirs for numerous viruses due to their extraordinary immune system and physiology, but the chances of contracting a disease in natural conditions are extremely low. Of course, unless one heckles bats needlessly. Okay, so guys, <laughs> don't bat heckle. <laughs> okay, no if bat heckling. No bat heckling. No matter how bad their set is, no matter how bad their stand-up is, don't heckle them. You know what? We've been looking for a, a slogan for useful idiots. Yeah. Maybe that could go on our merch. Useful idiots, no bat heckling. Yeah. Right? I like that. Yeah, I like it. And of course, as as is always the case, you know, what we're doing to the hat, to the environment is partly why this is happening. Habitat loss and bushmeat consumption bring humans in closer contact with wildlife. Large commercial wildlife markets that exist in China and Southeast Asia bring humans in contact with live animals that are kept in unsanitary conditions, thereby compounding the risk of disease transmission. Habitat loss has an indirect and significant role in disease outbreaks. So yeah, we're screwed. Just, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Don't, bat, bat, don't bat heckle and cut back on your bush meat consumption. Yeah, exactly. Which both of those things are going to have a real impact on me. And Matt, you were complaining about how people are taking extreme measures that are really disruptive. And so I don't know how I'm going to be able to do either of those things. Yeah, I don't. I, I I'm already upset about being bush meat shamed. Yeah. When, what is bush meat? I don't know what bush meat is. It's like in 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 some countries when people eat. Uh, like very wild game and but there it can be monkeys apes whatever oh. like they're they're, e they're eating things that you wouldn't typically think of as as uh edible agricultural yeah exactly like they're yeah and that's because of like customs or because of disruptive it's by custom it's, it's 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 you know due to the fact that they're living in areas where they don't have access to you know processed foods so but the part the but those this is one of the theories about how uh, HIV came about is because it was originally SIV and people, yeah. So who, who knows? So. From monkeys? Yeah, simian immune. Yeah, uh, yeah. before it was GRID, gay-related immune, yeah. immune deficiency. Remember that? You yeah. were alive then, so was I, but I wasn't as old as you. I was, yes, yeah. Did you remember being called GRID? I do. Yep. No. Gay-related immunodeficiency syndrome. Yeah. Yep. I remember all that. I also remember how long, incredibly long it took for the for people to freak out about it. But then I that was Reagan's then there was fault. a moment, and it's funny because I I was talking to I have a relative who worked at uh, one of the big networks and and uh, was talking about how there was a moment in time where they were doing one AIDS story on a Monday, and by Wednesday it was three AIDS stories, and then by Friday with the whole the whole block was AIDS stories. And so these things, they, they do reach like a moment when everything hits critical mass, it just happens faster in today's right, yeah. environment. And of uh, course, Reagan, like famously did not mention it until 
very late oh, on. Yeah. Very late no, it took the, them yeah. forever, right? But the, of course, it was a different population of people who was getting the disease, so right. they didn't care as much. All right, so lots to get to this week, politics-wise. Uh, obviously, has not been a great run for Bernie Sanders, the debate, uh, which we watched together drunkenly was mm-hmm. was uh, a bit of a fia- well it wasn't a fiasco but, but you know, biden was much more coherent than he usually was uh add to that the results of the primaries that probably shouldn't have happened and you get headlines like the one in vox which says that biden has essentially won the nomination he has a virtually insurmountable lead he's above 1000 delegates um but i th- i think the debate i don't know if you agree with me but the the debate i think has brought to the forefront um the, the sort of big biggest problem with with Biden, in, in addition to his declining mental state, which I think it's fair to say that, it, it's just the, his unbelievable fluidity and lying. It's just, it's it reaches a critical mass at some point. He's just completely shameless about it. I mean, on a Trumpian level, am I wrong? Or? No, yeah. I mean, we should go through it. Someone should make a mashup video about it. But yeah, it is a Trumpian level. Um, but it's in some ways actually scarier because. Whereas Trump doesn't really particularly pretend to be honest, Biden does. Like, that's the thing. This is a stable, you know, Trump calls himself a stable genius, but no one actually believes he's either of those things. Whereas people do think of, of Biden, despite his gaffes, as a reliable, you know, on like statesman who is not an unprecedented threat. Did you ask on Twitter what drugs both candidates were? You did a Twitter poll, right? Um, yeah, asking what, 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 what were the drugs? What Give drugs people thought the, the candidates might be on. And by that, basically, we were mainly talking about, about Biden. But the right. overwhelming results, I think the, the, four, the four choices were uh, Vivance, Modafinil, Ritalin, and... Um, Adderall. And Was Adderall. Adderall? Right. And over, overwhelmingly, I think, Dan, if you look, the poll results are there. Actually, yeah. interesting results. So look at this. We had 2,635 votes and 53.2% of the people uh, voted for Adderall. Then there was Modafinil came in third, I guess. Ritalin was second and Vyvanse was fourth. But it was close. It was similar to the Democratic field earlier this year. Before we press on from the debate, we should just talk about some of the things that he said in the debate. And just to give an example of of Biden's sort of fluidity in, in saying absolute untruths. And I think there's, a, there's an issue here where one of the reasons I think he gets off on this a little bit is because people don't know, is he lying or does he not remember? It's like, not, it's not always clear. And sometimes it's, it feels like it's a little bit of both. And I, I think that dulls the impact of it a little bit, but there were, there were amazing things that he said in this debate, just totally amazing. Okay, so he, he was very, very uh, aggressive in talking about his record on immigration. And here, here are some things, here's, here's the point of the debate where he pledged as a uh, that if he were president, the only deportations would be uh, of people who committed felonies. And let's take, take a look at this. In the first hundred days of my administration, no one, no one will be deported at all. From that point on, the only deportations that will take place are commissions of felonies in the United States of America. So, so to be clear, only felons get deported and everyone else Period. has to say. Yes. Yeah. So he says that. And then there's another question um, where uh, Ilya Calderon asks him what his, his policy would be on people who are, who are picked up and whether they'd be deported. Where do you stand now? Should undocumented immigrants arrested by local police be turned over to immigration officials? No. So people may not remember 
just exactly how ferocious Biden was on immigration for most of his career. I mean, if, if you go back and actually listen to the way Biden talked about this issue once upon a time, it's amazing. It's, it's basically indistinguishable from Donald Trump. Let's look at a video for, for Biden from 2006. This is amazing. Greatest disparity in wealth. It's one of the wealthiest countries in the hemisphere. And because of a corrupt system that exists in Mexico, there is the 1% of the population at the top, a very small middle class, and the rest is abject poverty. Folks, I voted for a fence. I voted, like, unlike most Democrats, and some of you won't like it, I voted for 700 mile fence. But let me tell you, we can build a fence 40 stories high unless you change the dynamic in Mexico. And and you will not like this, and punish American employers who knowingly violate the law when, in fact, they hire illegals. Unless you do those two things, all the rest is window dressing. The reason why I, parenthetically, why I believe the fence is needed is not related to immigration as much as drugs. I'm the guy that wrote the National Crime Bill. I'm the guy that wrote the National Drug Directory. I'm the guy that wrote the law that set up a drug czar. But let me tell you something, folks. People are driving across that border with tons, tons, hear me, tons of everything from byproducts from methamphetamine to cocaine to heroin. It's all coming up through corrupt Mexico. How is that meaningfully different from their, their, their bringing the worst people? Oh, you mean rapists and, and, and drug dealers or yeah, they're, they're, and criminals? They're bringing, yeah. bringing murderers. They're bringing, murderers, I mean, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, tons and tons of methamphetamine, coke and heroin. That's a, it, it's, I mean, I, I listened to Trump give that basic, that exact same speech countless times in 2016. He's talking about building a fence. You could build it 40 stories high, but it, it still wouldn't be enough because you have to not only deport people, but you have to go and punish the people who hire illegals. Right, right. So it completely contradicts what he just said about, oh, no, no. when people get stopped by, by ICE, you know, and they're undocumented, are they going to be are they going to be turned over? No, no, no. I mean, he says that in the debate. He's just completely lying. Right. I mean, to, to play devil's advocate, he could have, right, he could evolve, could have evolved, but he wouldn't need to have said that, right? I mean, it's such a significant turnaround that he should have been pressed on that and asked about that and said, so your position is different from when you said uh, build that fence, basically. It's just a, a great metaphor for, it's like he's slightly, just slightly less offensive than Trump, right? Like he doesn't call them rapists and murderers. They're just drug addicts and drug dealers. Yeah, no, but he's, in, he's incredibly aggressive on this issue. And he, you know, talking again, remember, he wants to criminally punish not just the people who, who are here illegally, but also the people who hire them, right? So, so he said that. Then, uh, then there's this amazing, amazing passage when Bernie confronts him about his social security views and, and he talks about how it's a flat lie yeah one one second sorry also read the uh immigrant thing i gotta give him credit for being consistent in one thing he calls them illegals then and he called them aliens <laughs> right debate. Yeah, exactly yeah yeah and just just quickly about that about the whole evolving thing like the okay let's just say theoretically he has evolved and he he does recognize that 
maybe he was wrong or that it's polit the political necessity of changing your views on immigration. Those, those prior statements where he's so heated and he's so emotional about it, that shows you where his heart is or was at one, at one time. So that's, a, that's an important indicator of how hard a person is or is not going to press on an issue. And look, immigration is a complicated issue. And I mean, there, there, there's lots and lots of positions you can take in between completely open borders and, and putting up a wall. But uh, he was pretty, pretty far on the side of let's just keep all, all of corrupt Mexico, as he put it out. All right, let's look at on, uh, the, the Social Security, which was just as bad, I think. My Lord, Bernie, you're running an ad saying I'm opposed to Social Security that PolitiFact says is a flat lie okay. and that the Washington Post said is a flat lie. Oh, well, let me ask you a question, Joe. Yeah. You're right here with me. Yeah. Have you been on the floor of the Senate? You were in the Senate for a few years. Yeah. Time and time again, talking about the necessity with pride about cutting Social Security, cutting Medicare, cutting veterans programs. No. You never said that. No. All right. America, go to the website right now. Go to the YouTube right now. Time after time, you were not a fan of Bull Simpson? I was not a fan of Bull You were not a fan of the balanced budget amendment which called for cuts in Social Security? Come on, look, Joe, you won't. Look, here's the deal. You're an honest guy. Why don't you just tell the truth here? We all make I, mistakes. I, okay, let's, let's, let's hear what, uh, what Biden said once upon a time. This is back in the 90s. I, when I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans benefits. I meant every single solitary thing in the government. And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice, I tried it a third time, and I tried it a fourth time. So there he is, and he's, he's repeatedly over and over again, and this is the thing with Biden, he, he often, I, rem I remember some of these speeches back in the day, he always positioned himself as, where other Democrats wouldn't go, I'm willing to go. When, it, when we talk about balancing the budget, I'm willing to make the hard choices. So he's repeatedly talked uh, about cutting Social Security. Everything is on the table. You see how, he, uh, again, how emotional he gets about, the, uh, about these things. And then he just stands up there and, and there, again, there's two things here. He must know that this video is out there, but he's assuming that he's not going to be punished for it by by the press and by PolitiFact and by all these fact-checking organizations that are gonna carry his water for him. It's, it's, it's like atrocious, right? It's really disgusting. And I don't know why, San I get where Sanders, I feel like I, that's such a relatable feeling where he's like, come on, oh, come on, just tell the truth, Joe. Like we all make right. mistakes, but why, he's not honest, Biden. Biden's not honest. And I think Bernie like can't get over whatever rapport that they have. I mean, also, it was kind of endearing when he's like, oh, really? You don't want to cut cut uh, Social Security? Then, every, all right, everyone, after this debate, go to the YouTube. Yeah, the YouTube, the internets. Yeah, yeah the exactly. Internets. Like, what? he should have had a quote. He really should have had a quote. I don't know why he didn't just read one of these quotes. It really was frustrating. All he would have had to have done, forget the Paul Ryan one, which people, oh, my God, that sounded like I was rapping, and I immediately th thought of the baby got back in my head. Um, but forget the Paul Ryan thing, which people can like, I mean, Bernie's people are right that he was, he wasn't, he was siding with Paul Ryan, but fine. If you want to say that, that there's a nuance in, in like in the rhetoric, but just go back to one of these, just say that, just literally quote it. Why didn't he quote it? He, he should have had a sheet in front of yes. him full of, of Biden's statements that, he, um, and, and actually what he should have done 
is announced at the beginning of the debate that whenever Joe lies about something, I'm going to pull this out, you know, or yeah. the first time he did it. Um, or go like wag the finger and then people, because yeah. Joe's a dude, so no one can pretend he's being sexist or misogynist. Exactly. Um, but it didn't, it didn't, none of that stunted Biden at all. He, he kept going. He's malarkey. He himself is the biggest malarkey candidate. Total malarkey. And so here, here he is talking about the bankruptcy bill. Here's a video that's where we see him talking about the bankruptcy bill in the debate, and then we see immediately see afterwards statements from the Senate floor contradicting what he said. Uh, this is a little bit about leadership as well. Um, Joe talked about bankruptcy. Joe, if my memory is correct, you helped write that bankruptcy bill. I did not. All right. Senators Biden and Carper have worked tirelessly for years on this legislation, and they've taken some tough votes to get it done, and I admire them for it. You would expect senators from Delaware, which is the corporate state, uh, to do their best to get this bill through, but they did. A few moments ago, we completed action on the bankruptcy bill. I want to uh, particularly thank all of our colleagues for the work on the bill, uh, in particular, Senator Grassley and Senator Hatch, Senator Sessions, and others on both sides of the aisle who've been working on this legislation for lo these many years, seven or eight years, I was told by Senator Biden a while ago. I spent a lot of time on the Hill in 2006. I, I did a, a bunch of stories on Congress, on the response to, then there was, earlier than that, then there was the response to the Katrina disaster. And it was, everybody knew that Biden was was leading the Democratic side of the bankruptcy bill. He was, he you know, he worked for, he came from the credit card company stayed. He had long long-standing long ties to MBNA, which was one of the big players in this, legis this legislation because the credit card companies were driving this awful bill. And for people who don't know what the bankruptcy bill was about, it, it, was, it was designed to make it impossible for people to declare bankruptcy to get out of a consumer credit debt. So while you can be Donald Trump and walk away from a project and not pay for it and then declare it, have your business declare bankruptcy later. If you run up $25,000 in credit card debt because you want to pay for groceries for your kids or whatever it is, you can't get out of that. It will follow you around like herpes for the rest of your life, right? It's a virus you cannot get rid of. And they, and this evil, it was one of the most evil bills we've ever passed because uh, it's completely discriminatory and it creates a total double standard. And Biden, uh, and, and you have to give credit to uh, who? who no, who, no pun intended. Yeah, no pun intended. Who was the first Republican in that bill? That was uh, that was Orrin uh, Hatch. Orrin was Hatch. Orrin Hatch was saying, yeah. "Yeah, well, you would expect the person from Delaware to vote for this bill." He was basically saying, "Yeah, of course Biden's voting for it because he's he's paid for by the credit card industry," but uh, but totally shameful. I mean, and for him to just be like, "I did not." I know. Again, he knows he knows that no one's going to beat him up on this, you know. Uh, which is I'm really I gotta say, oh by the way, and Carper, right? They named Carper, who of course is the one who isn't he the one who gave um, the recommendation to Hunter, yeah. To Hunter to be um, to be on the board of Amtrak as someone who takes Amtrak. That's yeah, Hunter Biden rides a lot of tra Amtrak yeah, trains. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I have to say, some of you may have noticed that I I I, I somewhat appreciate Bernie Sanders. I'm uh, I'm on the fence in this primary, but I'm leaning <laughs> I'm leaning Bernie. You're teetering. I'm teetering. Yeah, I have to say, this was the first time I was really kind of angry at Sanders. Like I was. And it reminded me, Matt, of what you said a couple episodes ago, where you're like, he has to, uh, when you, based on your piece saying that he had to be more on the offensive and basically up, like, um, make, not just keep growing his campaign as is, but ch adapting to how, what you have to do when it gets bigger. 
and you of course quoted some a Sanders person saying that it's like uh, Steve Martin's character in The Jerk, where when he gets a lot of money, he just builds a bigger shack. Mm-hmm. He starts out poor, um, and I was just like, and you said, you know, he's 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 people are believing in him. They're putting their energy in him. They're giving him lots of money, but he needs to like have his shit prepared and he needs to bring the receipts and needs to say, Biden, you said ABC on in 19, whatever. Um, and just, he had, he could have and should have just really cornered him ideologically in, in as, as a liar that he is. Absolutely. And more than that, he, he, he had to, you know, I think he needed to make what, you know, an apostrophic address to, to the, to the voters at that time. And you have to say, this man is lying to you. Not only that, he's a symbol of what the Democratic Party has done for decades. They pretend to be one thing. And then when they get into office, they do another thing. Uh, And, and over and over again, this has happened. And he's the perfect symbol of this, right? I mean, he, he had to say something like that. And you're absolutely right. He needed, he needed to have chapter and verse yeah, uh, and just batter him with it because it's again it's abundantly clear that the moderators aren't are going to let him get away with it and, so pathetic and what's, so, a, what's apostrophic i mean apostrophe like a direct address you know why is that apostrophe isn't apostrophe like owning something like possessive anyway i believe i just, you, I just meant that you know yes. in, 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 For, while you're in the middle of the right. debate like there's a moment in time where you have to right. shift yeah get, yeah camera and say folks right is what he's doing you know like and and trump is really good at that i mean yeah I, I, yeah I of course about, you you have to you have to sum it up and give it to people in a, in like a bite sized portion and make and make sure that they can't escape what the the reality of what they're watching. Wouldn't he, it be funny if he was like, folks, folks, he, he's a liar, he's a liar, folks. If he said it like Trump, <laughs> people already compare him to Trump, so he might as well just totally lift his yeah, own it. Yeah, own yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, there were there were a few more. Uh, he he again dissembled about his Iraq record, and he also did it in an interview with Lawrence O'Donnell just prior to the debate. I think we should look at that too, just to to recap this. You say that your vote on the Iraq war was based on the president's Bush's representations, that this wasn't about going to war. It was about presenting uh, a clear, at least threat to Saddam Hussein. Bernie Sanders says, I saw right through that. I was right. I knew what George Bush was up to. Uh, when we look back on it, can we say that Senator Sanders' judgment about that was better than yours? Look, the reason I voted the way I did was to try to prevent a war from happening because, remember, the threat was to go to war. The argument was because Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. So he said that I need to be able to get the Security Council to agree to send in inspectors to put pressure on Saddam to find out whether or not he's using, is producing nuclear weapons. And at the time, I said, that's your reason. All right, I get it. That was, the, the rationale was, that's the way to not go to war because I didn't believe he had those nuclear weapons. I didn't believe he had those weapons of mass destruction. So he says, I didn't believe they have weapons of mass destruction. Let's hear what he said at the time. Other countries have or seek weapons of mass destruction. Saddam has actually used them against his neighbors, against his own people. He has a lengthy track record of aggression, first in Iran, then Kuwait. He has brutally repressed Iraqi civilians, first the Kurds in the north, then the Shias in the south, then the Kurds again. And the combination of Saddam Hussein and weapons of mass destruction is dangerous, destabilizing, and deadly. Ultimately, either those weapons must be dislodged from Iraq 
or Saddam must be dislodged from power. I feel like he's dangerous, destabilizing and deadly and needs to be dislodged from the primary. Does that sound like somebody who's just who is just really anxious to get inspectors in there to see if he has weapons of mass destruction? So, you know. So wait, can you just outline the the lie? So where I'm trying to catalog the lies just on this one lie about Iraq. Well, saying, okay. Yeah. So it's because it's so multi-layered. The problem with his his lies about Iraq is that he he's had about 19 different positions on they evolve almost literally every time he talks about the issue uh and we should talk about that because that's he worse than Hillary who's had evolving positions on on this issue he uh doesn't even seem to be able to keep track of the things that he said uh, about this issue so just to get, take an example um he's been saying for a year now that he was opposed to the war before it started uh, our, uh, someone who's a friend of mine, Michael Tracy, approached uh, Joe at, a, at an event in September, and this is what he said. Why have you been saying you were against the Iraq war when you, you helped make Bush, helped Bush and Cheney make the case in 02 and 03? Everybody could No, no, no. If you look what hap actually happened, Dick Luger and I had a proposal to make it difficult for him to use force. And the reason why it went in is that the, what happened was the argument was he needed, and I, I, I believed him, I was wrong. I was wrong. I believed him when he said he wasn't going to use force. It was just to get the Security Council to force inspectors in to see whether there was any nuclear activity going on with Saddam Hussein. And, 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 and that's what he did. But you didn't oppose the war before it began. Yes, I did oppose the war before it began. Very clear he's saying, I did oppose the war before it began. But he clearly says in that, and he said it multiple times in the course of the last year, that I opposed the war before it began. However, uh, we have this video. Of, uh, Dan, if you could look at the one that we originally, originally wanted to queue up there, nine months after the war. Nine months ago, I voted with my colleagues to give the President of the United States of America the authority to use force. And I would vote that way again today. It was a right vote then, and it would be a correct vote today. So... To say that he has an evolving position on this is is, is generous. He he just says what whatever he thinks in the moment is going to be the is going to be uh, received the best, which is exactly the kind of thing we've been criticizing Trump for for the last four years. And so this is a person who's who does this over and over and over again about every conceivable issue. Yeah. And uh, and we and we have to remember that he was an up and coming politician who was headed for the presidency maybe in 1988 when his whole political career was derailed because he serially has a problem with this. And, and, and just the last clip I wanna show is one, which I think is really illustrative because it's, it just speaks to his inability to keep track of all the different things that he says. Uh, here's one talking about his educational background. Explaining to do, the new questions stem from with taped remarks of, of Biden States. during an April campaign appearance in New Hampshire. I went to law school on a full academic scholarship, the only one in my, in my class uh, to have a full academic scholarship. Went back to law school and, in fact, ended up in the top half of my class. I was the outstanding student in the political science department at the end of my year. I graduated with three degrees from undergraduate school and 165 credits, only needed 123 credits. Biden now concedes he did not graduate in the top half of his law school class that he does not have three degrees from college, and that he was not named outstanding political science student in college. Newsweek says Biden actually went to school on a half scholarship, ended up near the bottom of his class, 
and won only one degree, not three. Joe Biden ranked 76th in a class of 85 at the University of Syracuse Law School. I mean, this guy comes off this whole thing as a flyweight. Now Biden says Newsweek is right. His memory had failed him. Yeah, so back then he's saying, oh, he, he misremembered. How do you misremember all of those different things? And, and you know, he, he, he has told evolving stories about everything from the, the giving the medal to the person in, in Afghanistan to being arrested in South Africa to yeah. the, the plagiarizing speeches from Neil Kinnock. I mean, like, this guy is unable to keep straight the things that he says. And I, I, I don't know how you feel about it. I, I think he just doesn't know. Like, he, I think, I think his, he, he has a problem. Hmm. Like, yeah, he tells himself stories about this stuff. In addition like, to being cynical and, 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 and just lying like any politician would. Right. So the question is, like, whether he's, so he's definitely disingenuous. And then the question is also whether he's, like, deluding himself or decompensating or uh, a combination of all of those things. Right. But either, you know, the thing is, and we talk about this a lot and people don't get this like Dems. A lot of Democrats or quote unquote liberals, progressives don't get this, which is that Trump will absolutely kill Biden on this. Like he will he will absolutely decimate him during debates about this. And then when you say that, people say, yeah, but Trump's a liar, too. But again, totally different standard. The threshold of honesty is totally different. Trump's hypocrisy is not hypocritical. Biden's hypocrisy is hypocritical. Basically, all Dems' hypocrisy is hypocritical because they are, especially now, running as the honest, you know, like um, tra traditional, normal, normalcy candidates against this guy who is a total aberration and a nut job and, um, you know, mentally unstable. He will, I mean, we saw him do this with Hillary Clinton on her super predator remarks during a debate, which is like hilarious because. He, this is a guy who wanted to reinstate the death penalty around the Central Park Five right. guys. Um, he's a racist, but it doesn't matter because he pokes holes in people's armor. Um, and that may have been a mixed metaphor. Anyway, but people will, he, this will not be good. Like this will not be good and Trump will bring it up. And I mean, to be fair, maybe Biden is, is a fluid enough, fluent enough uh, liar that he'll just be able to, but I kind of think, I think he won't be able to because I think Trump, unlike Bernie, will do a really good job of nailing him and putting him in the corner. He'll be, he'll be a lot crueler about it, that's for sure. And, yeah. and, and he will say to his face, like, you know, Joe, what, what's the matter? Don't you remember? I mean, yeah. it'll, 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 be, it'll be nasty. Um, yeah. it, also, you know, Trump is vulnerable on, on, on the, the lies that he tells, but he's vulnerable in a way that the Democrats won't, that, that, that somebody like Biden won't take advantage of. I mean, he'll, he'll say, you know, Trump, Trump pledging to, to reverse the free trade agreements, to, to, to pitching himself as somebody who was going to end the, the pointless wars and overseas, but right. would actually increase the bombing. All those are issues that the Democrats don't want to go near, you know, so... I feel like Biden would go near those, actually, because he, again, he lies so much that even if he wouldn't, he, he'd just lie and pretend that he wasn't for those things. Right. But I still think that Trump will be able to highlight his dishonesty in a way that, that Bernie wouldn't, not because he couldn't, but just didn't um, for whatever reasons, and that it'll just, I don't know how vulnerable Trump is to that stuff. As we all saw, like, as he said, he could shoot someone on, what right. was it? Fifth Avenue, right? I don't know. I mean, I guess a thing that's frustrating to me, and I, I share what you said about the, your frustration about the press. Like, 
there once upon a time and this and we saw this with Biden himself if you lie on camera uh, and you you look directly into a camera and lie that used to be just disqualifying for a politician uh, we caught you doing this and and you know that's it <laughs> you're out uh, and he it's no longer a problem i mean we're we're in this this post truth society and for the, the same news organizations that have devoted entire sections of their company to counting all the different misstatements and lies that Donald Trump has made are just letting this fly. Right. I mean, yeah. Nothing, I, I, yeah. I just don't understand it. Like, yeah, I'm more, I, I find, I think that, um, I expect this from Biden. It's, it's like, it's reprehensible and it's a stain on, a. I don't want to say stain because that implies that like without it, it would be pristine or something. But the more frustrating thing is the media's complicity. Right. Then because we do expect politicians to lie. And as you said, like there was a time when the media was better on this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. They were better. I mean, they were shallower, but they, they you know, they, they went over after people. You know, they tended not to care if somebody had a changed position on some important issue. Uh, but, you know, if you lied about. Right your educational background or if you stole a speech from somebody or, you know, that was, we, that used to be fatal, you know, and, and the people who used to follow, follow uh, candidates around, they had a little bit of a standard. Like we wouldn't let in just a complete jackass through, uh, you know, not, not without some serious abuse anyway, you know, and now they just, you know, <laughs> there's just no standard anymore for this, for this oh. kind of stuff. And, and for all, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you, you keep going. For all of Bernie's, flaws and he, and he has some like he he does check the box of somebody who has integrity about the things that he says you know he's he doesn't have personal failings you know there aren't affairs there aren't financial uh, you know misdealings in the in the background these are all things that uh, campaign journalists traditionally cared a lot about you know we, we dug through your records if we found something you know even john Kerry, they 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 nearly sank Kerry's campaign over an affair that apparently didn't happen. You know, so they they'll they'll go after those things. They don't they don't do it anymore. And Biden is just as he's just a gigantic uh, red flag, and I just don't understand it. So tell us about the results, Matt. What do they mean? Where do we so, go from here? Yeah, virus notwithstanding, uh, thanks to Tom Perez, we we had we did have some results. Arizona, Florida, uh, and Illinois um, have all uh, the results are all in. Biden won all those states. Belatedly, we finally got the results for Washington state and Biden won that. Uh, finally, the results for California are in and uh, Sanders did win that finally. Um, but at this point, Biden has a lead of uh, you know, what, what they're calling insurmountable. It's over, over a thousand delegates. Uh, so he's, even though Bernie still has a considerable number of delegates, It'd be it'd be very very difficult. It would take a catastrophic event at this point for Bernie to really catch up. So, but it's not insurmountable. It's just very unlikely. Yeah, I mean, it would be have to be like a thing where Biden is almost like not on the ballot in some of those states. Basically, I mean, he would have to he would have to lose by landslide in a bunch of the states coming up, which is not terribly likely. But um, so the, the 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 whole complexion of the race really changed in the last three weeks of, of votes it's you know it's really basically a done deal at this point no <laughs> no i refuse to accept that so obviously all these people have been calling for him to drop out or calling for him to drop out even more but what is the strategic like what would be a justification for sanders staying in the race because he's 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 building a movement he's it's the same reason he stayed in last time 
He's got to stay in. He's got to get the maximum amount of leverage. And, right. I, and I think the argument they're going to make is that him staying in is going to hurt Biden in the general election. But that's actually not the case. The, the more aggressive that Sanders is now, it's going to it, it will actually help. Theoretically, it would help Biden in the end because he would have to confront all those things going right. forward. Before uh, with Trump, before he would with Trump. Right, exactly. And also, I think from a, from a longer range point of view, it's just the right thing to do. I yeah, mean, me too. Yeah. Biden is, he's, to me, he's an unacceptable candidate. And there's, there's a lot of things that, you know, there's probably some reporting that's yet to come about that, that this guy, but just, just in terms of his, his positions and his inability to, to tell the truth about things and, and, you know, his, his condition, it would be, it would be wrong for, for, for Bernie to, to, to drop out while there's any glimp, you know, glint of a chance uh, for him to still win it. And, and, and you know, it's not also it's not over uh, on the sense that that Biden hasn't he hasn't sewn up the supermajority. He hasn't shown up, sewn up the 1991 votes. So um, he's 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 got to stay in. I don't know what you think about that. Oh, I'm not. Sure. I wonder what Katie thinks about whether Bernie should Drum stay roll, in. Suspense, yeah. Right? Well, he did. I mean, it's true. He it, the thing is, like he moved Hillary and the platform to a more progressive platform and not just that, but he was urging, she of course ignored it, but he wanted them to not to oppose uh, TPP, like to put down the platform. And of course she didn't, but what is the, like, I don't really understand the, the leverage of having delegates if you're not going to get all of them. Well, especially if Biden doesn't get 1991 delegates, if, if he doesn't win on the first ballot, he's of course he'll win on the second ballot, but it's still important, you know, sim- symbolically, it's important to uh, to have as much power as you can going into the convention. It'll give you more say in, who, in right. who gets to be in charge of what committees, who's writing the platform, all that stuff. And, Shows your political mandate. And remember, Bernie, the, ultimately the leverage that Bernie has to learn how to exercise is the threat that my people are not going to be there. Right. You he should threaten. I hope behind closed doors he's threatening third party. Yeah, I mean, it, it might it might come to that, right? And and certainly, he's making a mistake by saying I'm going to on day one campaign for Biden. It's a huge mistake. He can't do that. And saying he's electable against Trump. Right. And for the people who are going to freak out about that, we have to reiterate this point. Why do people like James Carville spend their lives worrying about moderates? Because everyone knows moderates will go to the Republican Party if they don't like the platform. And nobody worries about that with progressives because they know progressives are in pocket. They're, they're, they're going to end up voting for the Democrat. They have That reality has to change if people want to have something change within the party, they have to they have to threaten to take their vote somewhere else, or at least sit it out. Otherwise, you know, the, all those delegates don't mean anything. Right. We had to scare. Yeah, they have to be scared into thinking that there's consequences. Right. And that they can't just take these voters for granted, even if even on the off chance that Sanders doesn't win the primary. Right. And that, and that can't be a bluff either. Like it has to be real. Like he has to really want, really think that way, which I don't think he does yet. So, so maybe what our role on useful idiots is we can every week we discourage people. We ask people to pledge to not vote for Biden in the general. That would make us really <laughs> beloved. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Well, it'll win us lots of love on social yeah, media. Yeah. So anyway, lots, lots of stuff this week. Lots of it. Most of it terrible. Actually, all of it universally just horrible to an yeah. unbelievable degree. This this whole episode should be called "Isn't That Terrible?" Yeah, yeah. What what wasn't that extremely terrible? Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, all right, so we have a great interview. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Like, on that note, with, yeah. Uh, with a, a brilliant man, brilliant man, uh, Noam Chomsky, the esteemed public intellectual of American life, great thinker, great. Uh, 
political thinker, great oppositionist. Uh, linguist. Linguist, and we had a terrific conversation with him. Terrific. Thank you. Thanks so much for doing this. We're all in quarantine. You were in quarantine? <laughs> yes. They sent us home today, so uh, we're, we're working remotely. Trying to be as respectful as we can of your time, so we'll just dive right into it if that's okay, Professor. Thank, thanks so much for, uh, for taking the sure time. Thing. Wondering, first of all, what's your, are there any lessons to be learned to, from what happened to the Sanders campaign? Uh, and did you, did you at any moment think that, that he actually might succeed and win the nomination? I was skeptical about as to whether he'd have a chance. I thought it, after Iowa, and I thought maybe there was a chance, but it seemed in Nevada, but it has always seemed to me a long shot. For one thing, there's a overwhelming establishment opposition. I mean, the media, the critique and condemnations were very powerful. And I noticed that uh, as soon as it looked that he was fading, then they started to get complimentary uh, articles about what a nice guy he is and so on. But that was after it became pretty clear that he wasn't going to win. Uh, the, uh, he had hoped plainly and said that there would be an upsurge of young voters. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, there's a strong youth support for him, but it didn't show up at the voting booth. It's easier to appear at a demonstration than to you know, do something old-fashioned like to walk into a voting booth and it's not what young people do. Now, the other thing which I've felt all along is that in this country, which is a very strange country, it doesn't make much sense to use the word socialist. In every other country of the world that I know of, it's like a Democrat, you know, it's not. A, but here, after decades and decades, of, you know, almost 100 years now of, uh, of uh, massive uh, propaganda vilifying the concept, uh, people just don't know what it means. It means uh, the gulag, uh, you know, something like that. We don't want that. Uh, my feeling all along was that what he should have done is, is this kind of out of character, but what he should have done is say, look, I'm an old fashioned new dealer. Uh, I'm one of the United States to the level of other similar countries, uh, all of which have uh, some form of universal health care and uh, free higher education. I think we can do that too. Uh, here's the way we ought to do it. Uh, that's two main points. Uh, it's basically saying, let's, let's try to be like everyone else. In the case of education, Let's try to be the way they we we were 60 years ago, 70 years ago, much poorer country, but we had essentially free higher education. It's called the GI Bill, which gave uh, not only free education but even subsidized education to great numbers of people who never would otherwise. It was very good for them, very good for the country. Professor, I know you've compared Bernie's politics to Dwight Eisenhower in the past. Were you? Were you amazed, A, that they were so, so successful in painting him as such a radical, and B, that he kind of went along with it? I mean, using the revolutionary terminology, uh, it seemed like he, he helped in marketing himself as being, um, as being more extreme than he really was. Well, I think it's a combination of 
uh, Sanders' understandable description of himself as a, a democratic socialist in most of the world, in fact, almost all the world outside of dictatorships. That's just a normal position. I don't know of any other country where a person has to apologize for being called a socialist. People run as communists in the uh, in, in elections. But the United States is a very strange country. Uh, it went berserk in 1917. Uh, you read back the, uh, you know, the Wilson administration's response to the Bolshevik Revolution. It was sheer area. Uh, the Bolsheviks are trying to put the ignorant and stupid masses in control and uh, all over the world, uh, leading historians like uh, uh, John Lewis Gaddis, who's the most respected Cold War historian, liberal historian, uh, in retrospect, uh, writes that the West uh, had to move directly to try to crush the Bolshevik Revolution because they were through the entire world with their aggressive challenge to introduce social reform. So what could we do but defend ourselves? I mean, that's the liberal end of the academic establishment. You go to uh, elsewhere, it's crazy. And this gets continually renewed uh, in called the McCarthy period, actually started by Truman, uh, total hysteria. Uh, on and on, you know, the Chinese are coming over to Congress. Uh, this just goes on and on. In fact, it goes way back in American history with other, back to the merciless Indian savages who are about, who are destroying us, Thomas Jefferson in the, uh, in the Declaration of Independence. It's a very frightened country. It's been off the spectrum on this issue for many years. So to use the word socialist is, Anywhere else in the world, it's normal, but here that comes with a lot of baggage. On the other hand, if Sanders had said, look, I'm a New Deal Democrat, I want to carry forward the New Deal programs that were uh, strongly supported by people like Dwight Eisenhower, who said, if you're not a New Deal, if you don't accept the New Deal, you don't belong in our political system and so on. It's been a regression in the last 30, 40 years. So let's go back to same policies. My uh, main policies, the major ones I'm advancing, are universal health care and uh, free higher education. Uh, practically every other country in the world has something like that. Uh, the countries with the uh, most most uh, uh, the, the, the successful educational systems, uh, Finland, Germany, uh, France, others, uh, have free higher education. Even uh, poorer countries like Mexico have it at quite a high quality. Uh, we had it ourselves back in the 1950s, 1960s. It was called the GI Bill, which provided free higher education, subsidized education to huge numbers of people who never would have gone to college. It was very good for them. It was very good for the country. We should certainly, we have a health system, which is an international scandal. It's uh, uh, the cost of comparable countries, relatively poor outcomes. The reason is it's the only one that's privatized huge administrative costs uh, 
advertising costs, enormous salaries, all kinds of inefficiency. So let's get rid of it and become a, be a much better country if we uh, move in this direction. Now, there are various ways of doing it. Here's my proposals, you know, okay. Uh, but something has to be done to try to educate the country to understand that paying $10 to a private corporation is worse than paying $5 in taxes. Uh, the hatred of taxes that's been engendered here is a remarkable fact. So there's plenty of people who are scared of rising taxes to pay for you know, healthcare for all uh, and would prefer to pay twice that much to private insurers uh, who you know, cut them off at the pass when they need uh, support and so on. It's an astonishing fact and it, it tells you something about the way the ideological system here has fostered that should be understood. Take taxes. Just think about it for a minute. I suppose you had a totalitarian state. Uh, April, they're stealing your money from you. You don't want to pay it. Suppose you had a democratic society. Let's just imagine that. <laughs> we'll try. Yeah, suspend disbelief. In a thought experiment. Yeah. In a democratic society, uh, people would get together, deliberate, say, here we want our community for our country, work out the ways of paying for it. April 15th is a day of celebration. Uh, we've uh, gotten together, we've decided what we want, we're gonna pay for it, great, everything's wonderful. Now just see where the United States ranks on that spectrum between democracy and totalitarianism. The, the internal conception that people have is as if we were in a totalitarian society. They, up there, we have nothing to do with, are coming to steal our money. Okay? The idea, it, and it's kind of intriguing that, you know, you can read in the, uh, the pundits, the commentators, we're a wonderful democratic society, but we hate taxes. Okay? Death and taxes, they go together. Little contradiction. Uh, simply the attitude towards taxes, meaning paying for what we want, ourselves, we paying for what we want, is a dramatic illustration of how hatred of democracy at a deep level has been engendered by uh, a century, actually, of uh, propaganda. It was different during the New Deal period. But during the neoliberal period, uh, a, pro a very prominent part of the propaganda system. Starts with uh, Reagan's little quips, his sunny little smile about how government is the problem, you know, and so on and so forth. Or Thatcher more seriously saying, there is no society, just individuals. So if they, your money from you, it's they're stealing. You know, the uh, neoliberal economists, uh, taxes are, uh, are theft, you know. Uh, all of this has sunk in to popular consciousness in a deep way. Now, Sanders, of course, would be facing the problem, any, any person would be facing the problem of trying to unravel a layer after layer of propaganda that has changed consciousness. What 
Gramsci called hegemonic common sense. You know, it's just like the air you breathe. You can't even think about it. I mean, what I said about taxes is not quantum theory. If you think for five seconds, it's obvious. But uh, does anybody say it? Uh, if people say it, it sounds like they come from Mars. You know? But it's perfectly elementary and obvious. Just as it's obvious that we ought to be able to rise to the level of other countries. In fact, we see it in the third world character of our infrastructure. It's uh, shocking. The richest country in history is infrastructure, which is unbelievably backwards. And we're facing it right now with the, or take the coronavirus. Mm. What's happening here is shocking. People can't get tested. There's, there's no test bill. Hospitals don't have beds. Why don't they have beds? Because there's a, a concept of economy and efficiency. You should have just enough beds for what you need tomorrow. You shouldn't prepare for the future, right? So you the, the hospital system's crashing. Simple things like tests, which you can easily get in a country like South Korea, you can't get here. So the coronavirus, which should be controlled in a functioning society, is going out of out of hand here. We're just not ready for it. What we're good at, but what our leaders are good at and have been very good at for the last 40 years is pouring money into the pockets of uh, the rich in the corporate sector while everything else crashes. Okay, now we're facing the consequences in consciousness, in awareness of the nature of the society and policies, even in the ability to respond to what you know, is plainly a serious problem could become catastrophe if we can't handle it. Doesn't this get to, to sort of to your bailiwick with the media though? I mean, all of these things, it's a relatively simple educational task to explain to people what the equation is with healthcare. For instance, you say it's, would you rather pay $10 to Aetna and Humana or would you rather pay $5 to the U.S. government? But how are you going to get there? You, you had a, we just had an election where the, the public overwhelmingly seems to want Medicare for all. Uh, you had a candidate who was very clear on the issue, but there was so much uh, propaganda from the cable networks, which uh, who, whose chief advertisers happen to be pharmaceutical companies. Uh, you know, it, how, how does anybody get past that uh, with that structure in place? Well, well, not simple, but you have to get back to the core of it. And it's not just the cable in the New York Times. Uh, Medicare, healthcare for all is going to raise taxes. Okay, it's going to raise taxes and cut back private expenses by far more than it raises taxes. Okay, that's why our healthcare system is so ludicrously expensive. Yes, low taxes and rotten healthcare and huge expenses. So that part of the story has to be brought to people. Now, it's not going to be easy for people who are spending their lives watching Sean Hannity, or for that matter, reading op-eds in the New York Times, to be honest. Uh, but that has to be done, and has to be done at a grassroots level. That means real serious education, a major process to try to change the level of kind of civilization in the country is very hard. And it's not just that issue, every issue. So take really existential crises, not just rotten health care, but the likelihood that 
organized human society won't survive for a couple of generations. That's pretty serious after all. Yeah, and that's happening. You take a look at public attitudes on that. I'm talking about what's called politely climate change, uh, the climate burning, the global warming, the world burning up. Uh, what, are, what, what are the public attitudes? They're very striking. It turns out that there's recent few poll on this, that the, uh, the uh, concern over global warming is increasing, but it's increasing in a subpart of the population called Democrats. If you take a look at Republicans, roughly half the population, it's uh, staying, it's very low and hasn't changed. Uh, the idea that it's a serious problem stays at about 25% change. Why? Because that's what they're hearing. You take a look at other studies, it turns out that the, uh, you ask what media sources are people uh, looking at, do they know about and trust? Uh, there was a recent study of about 30 media outlets, you know, print, uh, TV, the whole range. Among Democrats, it's uh, most of them. Among Republicans, it's really Fox News, uh, Rush Limbaugh, and Breitbart. Okay, so that's your source of news. Uh, everything's fine. All you have to do is trust in our dear leader and uh, everything will go away. Well, as long as people are immersed in that kind of alternative world, uh, there's going to be a lot of work to do to break through. And it's possible. So, for example, among younger Republicans, it's changing. Okay? They're the future. Uh, that they can be reached. Others can be reached with simple arguments like the kind we've been made. Not, I'm a socialist, I'm going to turn, I'm going to send you to the gulag, but uh, let's become like we were uh, 50 years ago and have free higher education, like Dwight Eisenhower supported, quote Eisenhower. Uh, these are ways of reaching people. You have to face people where they are, not where you think they ought to be. And it's not that they're people, it's that this is what you're immersed in. Uh, not only your life, but your parents' lives and your grandparents' lives. Uh, we see this on just about everything. Uh, ask people today what's in the Constitution. Uh, half the people will say what's in the Constitution is your right to assault rifles. Okay? Second Amendment is the only part of the Constitution most people even know exists. Where does that come from? Well, you can educate people about that. It's a con. It's a literally a con. Uh, the gun, the first great public relations triumph in this era of public relations was a, a massive campaign by the gun manufacturers back in the late 19th century when they were losing their market after the Civil War, you know, you didn't need sophisticated rifles. Other countries weren't buying them anymore. It was an agricultural country, so farmers had you know, a cheap musket to chase away um, coyotes or something, but they didn't want the, the stuff that the gun manufacturers were producing. So they started a huge campaign in which they concocted a completely fictitious story of the Wild West, you know, with sheriffs fast on the draw and 
Wild Bill Hickok and all this stuff. Complete con, none of it ever existed. But the bottom line was, uh, your son really is dying for a Winchester. Unless he has it, he won't be a real man. Uh, over time, a gun culture was created based on nothing, propaganda. Then along came the uh, 2008 uh, uh, Supreme Court decision, which reversed a century of precedent, supposedly an originalist uh, decision by the great scholar Scalia. You take a look at it. Just read it. Uh, he had all sorts of learned references to the 17th century. Somebody said so-and-so. But missing in the decision is every single reason why the founders wanted guns in a militia. They had three reasons, basically. One was to kill Indians because they were expanding over the West. They were invading what they called vacant lands, Indian country. It's one of the main reasons for the revolution. So you needed kill Indians. Later, you needed militias to do it. Uh, you had to control the slaves. It was a slave society. Almost all the founders were slave owners. There were slave rebellions all over the Caribbean. They were very frightening. So you needed guns. The third was the British are coming. The U.S. didn't have a standing army then. Uh, the British were frightening. In fact, they did come in 1812. So you needed the militias to fend them off. Uh, none of these had to do with the 20th century. Nothing. No. So the great originalist decision was a tremendous triumph. Uh, it said that the right to bear arms, individual right, not a militia right. You can kind of debate that arcane question, but it's, and that's what the legal profession focuses on. Side issue, you know, the main issue is why did the founders want people to have guns in the first place? Not for any reason has anything to do with the 20th century, let alone 21st. So the, the whole thing is basically a con. Just about every piece of the propaganda system you look at falls apart as soon as you begin to analyze it. But is it done? No, it's not done, even by the best people. Like, uh, take uh, Emily Bazelon, a very good little scholar and analyst, has a long a long uh, article in the uh, New York Times Magazine about a week ago uh, criticizing uh, the, the way the uh, legal profession and so on is handling the Supreme Court and others are. Uh, it's, it's basically about the success, very successful uh, Mitch McConnell effort to undermine the whole democratic system by stuffing the courts so that his policies will remain no matter who's in office. And she goes through this. She does discuss the Second Amendment. A good discussion of the debate in legal circles between the question, is it a, if you read the amendment, it's kind of ambiguous. Is it a militia or a, uh, an individual right? She says, points out correctly that the overwhelming evidence is for a militia right. That's the liberal view. It's beside the point. It's irrelevant. The whole Second Amendment has nothing to do with the 20th century, let alone now, when you look at the reasons why the founders wanted guns. Hmm. But that's breaking out of the what's called common sense. You can't talk about that. People don't understand it. I mean, I've talked about this at law school, but people don't understand it. It's, it's very hard to break through 
deeply embedded, uh, imposed consciousness. Common sense, as Gramsci called it, that's hard. And you can't expect Bernie Sanders or anyone to do that in a political campaign. You have to start where you are. I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just at an interesting point. Do you think that problem is worse in the social media age when people are getting so much more information all the time that they're the, the, the propag- is propaganda more effective now that people are glued to their phones all day long and seeing messages, not just you know four times a day or reading the news in the morning and seeing it at night, but now it's 500 times a day that they're reading the news? They're reading something. Whether it's the news or right. not, we could debate. Right. I think you should recognize, it has been pointed out, uh, Trump has been an absolute genius in propaganda. The best kind of propaganda, and he's a genius at it, is to just flood the airways with junk. Lies, fabrications, obvious fabrications, you know, like it's raining outside when it's sunny, doesn't matter what. Just flood everything with masses of lies and distortions. Then nobody knows what's going on. You're just overwhelmed. The idea, the very concept of truth and accuracy has kind of disappeared into the distance. Uh, at that point, you don't even need propaganda. Uh, just let anything go on the social media. You're great. Then you go ahead and you do what you want. The people who worship you will believe what you say. The people who, I wouldn't call it fascism or totalitarianism. It's kind of a new level of control of population. Control of population by immersing them in masses of information, disinformation, rants, screams, denunciations, and so on, so that there's nothing there but chaos. Now, it's not that hard to break through. As I said, it's not quantum physics. You stop to think for a little, you can find out what's going on. But uh, it's very hard to do that alone. People sort of think in groups. That's one reason why it's been so important during the neoliberal period to break up all associations, smash the unions, which were the main way that people could get together to have ideas, to interact, to discuss things, and so on, uh, destroy every other association, leave people atomized alone. It's you and your iPhone. That's it. That's the social unit. Uh, you go to a McDonald's and watch a bunch of teenage kids uh, uh, eat, you know, having hamburgers, a superficial one among the people, kids sitting at the table, and uh, each one's having his own conversation on the iPhone. It's a, you get a really atomized society. Uh, everything's very superficial. Uh, there's no truth. There's no accuracy. People are alone. Can't I can't fight? Uh, you know the whole social media system. Okay, people are totally controlled. You have to break out of that, and that means breaking out at a very deep level. I mean, there are colleges now where on the uh, sidewalks, pavements, uh, they have plaques saying, look up, and if you walk around, see why. Uh, Kids are walking around with their uh, glued to their iPhone. This is not any kind of life. It has to be dismantled at many levels. Now, that's the point, the place where you get, uh, you need serious educational and organizational programs. Uh, Until those are done, 
it's going to be very easy to take somebody with mildly progressive programs, programs that wouldn't have surprised Dwight Eisenhower, and tore him as a, a communist who's going to turn everything into a gulag and take your toothbrush away, you know. It seems like people, if we if we bring that up, that there is misinformation, disinformation on a, that's much more nuanced from MSNBC and the New York Times, often that's called Trumpian because Trump has so established himself as a someone who talks about fake news. So now it's people tr- pretend that any media critique is uh, is Trumpian, which of course shuts down media critique, media criticism, sorry. Actually, I feel somewhat guilty about this. Maybe I should have made it clearer, but I've done a lot of media critique in my life, and it's mostly directed against the liberal media because they're much more interesting. Right. Uh, they're the one, not just the media, right. it's the whole liberal intellectual establishment. Uh, academic, uh, you know, commentary and so on. They're much more interested because they, they set the limits on discussion. Here I am, I'm as far as you can go, you can't go a millimeter farther. So that tells you a lot about the nature of the dominant doctrinal system. It's very easy to read Lush, Rush Limbaugh and say, and show this totally idiocy, it's no trick, which it is. And I suspect it's conscious. He can't believe the things he's saying. He must be, I'm sure he understands, this is a con, this is the way to get my tens of millions of listeners to keep tuned, I'll tell them one crazy thing after another. And nobody could believe what he's saying. So that's easy. But to go after the liberal media, the in- intelligent guys, you know, the smart guys with the degrees, uh, that's more interesting. And it also negative effect that I didn't realize. It gets people to think you have to distrust the media. And that's not true. In fact, if you read the book that Herman and I wrote, Manufacturing Consent, about a third of the book is defense of the media. It's defense of the courage and integrity of reporters who are, however, acting, uh, be, uh, reporting within a f- framework that's distorting the nature of reality but they're doing a serious professional job. And we were defending them against the attack by Freedom House. Freedom House, which is supposed to be the, you know, the tribune of the people, is a, a launched a major denunciation of the media as being treacherous, uh, uh, losing the Vietnam War by their hatred of uh, the US government, all kind of grotesque nonsense. Uh, published two volumes, one of which was documentation, the other were ranting. The documentation was practically all false. So we went through all this. That's defense of the media, but critique in the sense that they're accepting the overall framework. So the journalists honestly and courageously described what was happening within the framework of uh, we're losing our attempt to impose democracy on South Vietnam. Not we're invading South Vietnam in the manner in which uh, Nazi war criminals were hanged. Can't say that. Uh, You read the extreme left critique, uh, Anthony Lewis, uh, the most, maybe the most extreme left commentator in the media. Uh, The Vietnam War was uh, started with the blundering efforts to do good. Uh, blundering efforts, it failed. 
by the end, uh, it was a disaster. We couldn't bring democracy to South Vietnam at an co appropriate cost. I mean, this is a left critique, you know, internally accepting the whole propaganda framework, even when the reporters are doing fine work and very courageous work. Okay, that's the way I think you have to understand the media. It's not that they're telling lies. No, they're working hard, telling the truth, good correspondence, honest people, most of them, but they're working within the same ideological framework that's imposed society. That's what they found in the liberal colleges and their uh, liberal professors and so on and so forth. So you accept it. And that's, I mean, the first thing I do in the morning is read the New York Times. It's the best newspaper in the world. You want some general sense of what's going on, that's where you go. But you have to read it critically. You have to think, you know, where's this coming? What is this, the hidden, the presuppositions that they're making? Uh, can we stop Iran's aggression by killing Soleimani? Uh, what's Iran's aggression? You know, where, where'd that come from? Be being surrounded by American bases. Uh, yeah, Iran right. is the greatest threat to world. Right. Uh, Iran is the greatest threat to world peace. Iranian nuclear weapons are a terrible threat. We have to stop them. Okay, let's stop them. Is there a way to stop them? Yeah, very simple. Uh, impose a nuclear weaponry zone in the Middle East. Not a problem. The Arab states have been strongly in favor of it for decades. Iran is strongly in favor of it. Uh, the out of 30 countries, strongly in favor of it. Now, Europe isn't opposed. Why isn't it done? Okay, hard to find out. There's one country that blocks it. Which country? The United States. Uh, every time the issue comes up at a international conference, U.S. vetoes it. it. Includes Obama. The last time was Obama. Vetoed it at the non-proliferation review session. Uh, why? Not hard to figure out. Israel has a huge nuclear capacity. You can't touch it. In fact, the United States won't even concede that it exists for a good reason. If we concede that it exists, then it uh, turns out that U.S. aid to Israel is probably illegal under U.S. law, which bans aid to countries that uh, construct uh, nuclear weapons outside the framework of the arms control agreement. So in order to protect Israel's nuclear weapon system, we're willing to face what that's called the greatest danger in the world. I think people in the United States could understand that and appreciate it if it was brought to their attention. But where are you going to see it? Okay, Everywhere you look, you find these issues. I'm picking a few sort of at random, but you can go through the gamut and you find them everywhere. Now that means serious efforts to change consciousness and understanding has to start at the grassroots level and it can extend. None of these things are complicated, really. They're very, they're right on the surface. So much on the surface that it's almost boring to deal with them. <laughs> I'm really sorry, but I have to break off much as I'd like to get oh, okay. oh, that's okay. Right. Maybe we Professor, thanks so yeah, much. We really yeah. appreciate it. And uh, we understand that you've... Uh, yes, you're yes, busy. yes. It's an honor. Thank, thanks so much. That was great. I learned a lot yeah. today. I learned um, 
that he really knows everything from like, you know, gun law, the Second Amendment, he just rattles all these names off. It's almost like Castro and Castro and Castro. Castroin. Castroid. Castroid. You know, I, I think his his take on uh, on the press, you know, which which obviously has been really important in my life, reading manufacturing consent. You know, I, I wrote a book that was essentially yeah. supposed to be a sequel to that book. Hate, and, Inc., uh, Hate Inc., which everyone should buy. It's great. Yeah. And I, I, I sometimes wonder whether he's he's changed his thinking about some of those things because um you know he grew up in an era when and he talked about he, he talked about this in the interview how you know he, he actually does really believe in the press right. he, he he always felt bad that uh manufacturing consent was was seen as a as a thing that people pointed to when they decided they were going to hate people in the media uh he, he as he put it you know once to me like the new york times is full of facts like it's it's not um, you know, this, this sort of disinformation silo, but I, I wonder if, you know, maybe that, that point of view needs to be updated a little bit. And so I sometimes think about yeah. that because the performance of the, of these, these stations and major news out and outlets has changed, right. you know, in the last three or four years and they've changed their commercial strategies and everything. Um, but he's still, you know, I, I think he's, he's unique in his ability to kind of see through everything. Right. And, look at the bigger picture and uh yeah so that, that yeah i think I, I i he felt guilt he said he felt guilty because he felt like he hadn't been clear but i felt guilty i felt like maybe i wasn't clear enough i obviously didn't mean like that he is responsible or anything or that his view is trumpian i mean he, he he is such a good critique of the media and such good media criticism kind of um criteria and and you know he wrote the book on it i just meant more what do we do about people constantly pretending that any criticism of the media is Trumpian? Um, right. And the other thing is, you know, it's like the New York Times does have more. I don't think it's that much of a contradiction. It's like the New York Times has more facts. The ratio of their of their facts to lies or facts to like insinuation is much higher than like Rush Limbaugh's. Right. But it still does have a lot of disinformation in it. It just has a lot yeah. of truth in it but i guess it doesn't we don't have to pretend that it's an either or they can be um but yeah, it's, yeah. Ab absolutely and and yeah there, there, there's the whole question of you know he's he talked about trump being a uh, a genius in terms right. of his ability to manipulate the news networks and to keep himself in the news and to and to use those uh, outlets as platforms of disinformation but I, you know i wonder about whether that's more of a, a, a uh, an arrangement mm, between right. Trump and the, like, in other words, they're, they're making so much money, whether they're, they're, you know, willingly being right. manipulated. Right? right. So there's, there's that whole question. There's that guy at CBS who said it was good for ratings, right? Yeah, exa yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right. So let and less, less moon Yeah. But no, very, very, very interesting. And, and his, he was one of the first people a long time ago to talk about how Sanders was being mis, you know, yeah. sort of miscast as this revolutionary firebrand. Right. His, his politics were a lot milder than than were being represented in the press, um, and so yeah, he, he, I, he, that was really interesting to hear what he had to say about that. I think that it's something you guys both seem to agree on. I think right, which is that it's not helpful for Sanders to call himself a democratic socialist, and I think that there that there's truth to that. But I think the flip side is that I think from the beginning maybe he shouldn't have called himself that. The problem is Sanders' shtick is that he doesn't that he's so consistent and that he will not like bend to to right. criticism or pressure um 
and you won't be like intimidated by, you know, by polls or, or what's it called, focus groups. So I think that it would also be harming to him to change how he identifies. So I think, I mean, I see, I see that there's, he's screwed to some extent either way. I also think that that's not insurmountable. I mean, I think again, like all the media stuff that we constantly talk about is a bigger, um, a bigger obstacle than his self-identification because of course a responsible media could be like, look, people don't really care about these labels. They actually like what he says, or look, he meet when he says he's a, a democratic socialist, what that means is being a Democrat like FDR or a Republican like, you know, Eisenhower. But that's a critique you hear of Sanders from across the spectrum. You hear it from people inside his campaign. Yeah. You hear it from other from other Democrat sure. people in the Democrat yeah. Party, you hear it from Republicans that, it, you know, just from a, purely from a marketing point right. of view, that, that word was a big anchor for him. Yeah. Um, and, that it, you know, it, it proved to be pretty problematic. Right. But on the other hand, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe this campaign will have the effect of changing attitudes about the word. Yeah. So, but it, as as he points out, he's swimming against right eighty or ninety yeah. years of relentless propaganda. Right. So and it tough. would have had a marketing cost, I think, in that people would have said, "Senator Sanders you used to call yourself a democratic socialist. Why don't you call yourself that anymore?" And that would have been another thing. Right. So right. also a brand uh, marketing cost, but um. Anyway, great, great yeah. talk, right? Yeah, yeah great very talk. Cool. Let's have him back. Noam yeah. Chomsky. All right, excellent. Bye, everyone. I'm Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.